Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Chit Heads. My guest today is Amy Matthews. Amy has been teaching movement since the early 1990s. She is a body-mind centering teacher, a certified Laban movement analyst, an infant developmental movement educator, and a movement therapist and yoga teacher based in New York City. Amy has partnered with Sarah Barnaby to create Babies Project, a space in New York City where we are today, dedicated to developmental movement for babies of all ages. Previously, she was a director of The Breathing Project and co-authored with Leslie Kamenoff the best-selling book, Yoga Anatomy. Amy is a program director for the School for Body-Mind Centering and teaches on SME and IDME programs in the US, Germany, and Italy. She taught for four years with Bonnie Bainbridge-Cohen in Berkeley, California, and was on the faculty of the Laban Berteniev Institute of Movement Studies for 10 years. Amy has participated several times in Gil Headley's dissection workshops and has studied kinesthetic anatomy with Irene Dowd and BMC with Bonnie Bainbridge-Cohen. She has studied and practiced yoga for more than 20 years, as well as dance, full-contact karate, which I did not know, and Aikido. Amy teaches embodied anatomy and movement workshops for programs in the US and internationally, and works privately integrating Laban movement analysis, Bertenia fundamentals, yoga, body-mind centering, and proprioceptive neuromuscular facilitation. So hi, Amy. Thanks so much for joining me. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to start my conversation with you today with sort of where we're at, which I mentioned in the bio is we're at the Babies Project. This is sort of your current baby uh, creatively. So let's talk a little bit about the Babies Project. You know, what is the inspiration about it? What is the work that you're doing here? And why is it important? So uh, a part of my training is as an IDMI, which is an infant developmental movement educator. And that body of work comes out of body-mind centering, which mm -hmm. is a somatic practice that I teach. And what it is about is about working directly with the infants and with the infant's caregivers about how they're touched and handled, mainly, so that um, their experiences of the world and of movements are, um, as early as possible, facilitating their learning. Mm. And our, our, one of the basic IDMI ideas is that um, babies come in, we come in as babies, curious, and ready to learn that we don't need to be taught. We just need to be in an environment mm -hmm. where things don't get in the way of us learning. Mm -hmm. But because we're handled, we're picked up, we're set down, it doesn't mean as caregivers that we just leave them alone all the time. It means that the way we hold them, we pick them up, we put them down, we hand them off, the way we talk to them, all of those things shape their environment and they end up having an effect on their experience of the world. Right. So we're not completely hands off but we're not teaching them how to do movements. We're being with them, being a witness, or being in relationship to them while they do things. Mm -hmm. So is there a sense in which, you know, uh, as we evolve as babies in our initial years, there are these sort of forces that are informing our way of moving in the world that are relatively unconscious. And so in this environment of the Babies Project, there's more of an, a conscious understanding of the conditions that are fruitful for um, um, optimal movement or is it because I guess my question is sort of grounded in this idea that when I first heard about the baby's project that 
and I know this isn't what you're doing, but this idea that I feel like a lot of people in our in our times feel, which is that there needs to be, you know, we need to be hyper aware of all of the fe- uh, of the kind of conditions or things affecting the babies in an almost rigid way, almost as if it's like another form of discipline. Babies can't be in dangerous areas. Babies can't fall. All these sorts of things. Yeah. No, we're not doing that. Okay, great. (laughs) What we're looking at is um, that babies, hmm, how to say it, Uh, that babies don't, human babies don't grow up as feral creatures figuring everything out. Mm -hmm. So, So they can't learn without an environment and a culture to learn in. Yeah. They also, however, are not blank slates who need to be fed every little bit of everything. Right. So um, we want to we help the idea happen that if we're with them in a, in a pretty simple environment, like gravity is a huge force. And then there's already a ton of stimulus, certainly in New York City. Yeah. And the stimulus of relationships or of a color or light or sound. That um, it's, it's, maybe it's about finding the sweet spot between offering them enough that mm-hmm. they curate. Well, first of all, we want to start from do they feel safe? Do they feel comfortable? Do they feel bonded? To us, yeah. and then can they get curious? Yeah. And then if we can do those things to establish safety and comfort and a sense of relationship, then they'll get curious. So it's not about being like a helicopter parent. It's yeah. not about keeping them from doing things. We're really into teaching them how to fall mm. and teaching parents how to help them learn how to fall. Mm. We're very into not putting them into positions they can't get themselves into and out of so that they learn how to do those transitions themselves. And when they can't do it, that they don't, uh, when they're not ready to do something, they don't do something. Mm-hmm. But then when they are, they have the curiosity to do it. So can they be adventurous without being reckless? Yeah. Can they be confident but not overconfident but also not afraid? And, and that's some kind of sweet spot between doing nothing and doing everything. Yeah, yeah. This sort of reminds me a little bit of, I, I heard about this designer. I mean, you never think about the person who designs jungle gyms for children, but there's, maybe you've heard it, yeah. This woman who designed jungle gyms for children and the whole, the, the whole ethos is really that, you know, we went through this period where they were trying to make everything hyper safe. And so there was no possibility that a child could hurt themselves. And, and, and her whole you know, theory is that no, actually there needs to be the opportunity to fall and hurt yourself because that's part of the kind of evolutionary process. So you, you're nodding your head, so I'm assuming you agree with that. Yes, we completely agree. You're like the fourth person to tell me about this woman and mm. I was given the book for my birthday, which I haven't read yet, but, but that's exactly the idea. And also I think that it's this person that's like, let's not make the playground look like a castle. Right. Let's just make it look like a playground and then they'll make it look like things. I mean, they'll make it into whatever they imagine. Like mm. we have a toddler's class and the number one toy in our toddler's class is the salad spinner and the plastic bin. Mm. And they, they put things in it, they take things out. They, like, they don't need- They don't uh, need much. They don't need a story, they don't need, and they just love to do things. Mm-hmm. And they love to do things that adults are doing. Yeah. 
So yeah. So in your bio, it says um, babies of all ages. Now I read that as like we're all babies. But then I, later I was thinking, well, maybe it just means, you know, toddlers and inf- infants to toddlers and something like that. So what does it mean? Well, it does mean both um, the infant developmental education work, the IDME work, is for infants from newborns to walking, very specifically. We've spread it up into toddlers now because we want to see how these principles carry out and there's kind of a gap in our, between the infant work and then when they go to preschool. So we're trying to fill in that gap for people in the area. Um, but also, a part of the body-mind centering work is about developmental movement with adults. Mm. And these questions, are you safe? Do you know you will survive? Are you comfortable? Do you know how to get comfortable? If you're not comfortable, can you get comfortable? If you're not getting comfortable and you could be getting comfortable, why aren't you getting comfortable? Do you have, uh, are you bonded? Do you feel the support of the floor? Do you feel the support of the other people? Are you able to, to learn new information? Are you curious? These are questions for teaching adults, too. Mm. Like these, this, as a teaching question, those run through all of my teaching. Because if any student doesn't feel safe, then it's really hard to do anything but like force information in. Yeah. And I think that learning for all of us comes out of an experience of curiosity at its best. Mm. Mm-hmm. There is also a kind of learning that comes out of problem solving, like this really sucks, I need to fix it. Mm-hmm. But we're talking about a different kind of curiosity that's about like, wow, I wonder what would happen if I put my head on my knee. Mm-hmm. Can I be curious about myself in that moment? So, so that's the idea and that if we missed a developmental window as infants, because there's all this literature about like this is the window of time when an infant learns to do something and if you miss the window the window closes we don't believe that like if you said to me well i never crawled i miss learning how to do this i'd be like all right jacob let's figure out how to like make those connections in your body now Mm -hmm. because we continue to be um like malleable and we continue to be curious and there's always that possibility for change. Mm-hmm. We don't stop changing when we turn five years old. Right. So Which is, is sort also, of against the kind of Freudian idea where there's sort of an imprinting that happens at an early age and you're sort of stuck with that at some yeah. point, you know? Yeah, we don't buy it. Yeah. So what are some of the ways in which um, you see the kind of unconscious cultural forces working on our relationship to movement uh, or maybe another way of asking that question is how are we moving in ways that are are very much influenced by our cultural programming um, that perhaps in here there's a sense in which we're trying to unprogram those um, forces does that make sense it does I'll say something then you might have to ask me again okay (laughs) (laughs) Um, so One of the things that I see impacting both adults learning movement and infants is the idea that the position is more important than the process. Mm -hmm. And and that in an infant, getting to sitting and being able to sit is the the like six month milestone and we need to put babies in sitting so they learn to sit. And we don't believe that's the case. That a baby, what's more important than being able to stay in sitting, because what we often see in an infant who's been put in sitting is they learn how to stay there, but they don't know how to get out of it. Mm. 
-hmm. And if you think as an adult, if you've ever been like put in a position that you don't know how to get out of, what we tend to do is brace and kind of hold and hang on for dear life because I don't have anything else to do but survive. Yeah. So that's not the question we want them to be in. We want it to be a transition question. So it is about the process and not the position. And I think that ends up being true in adult movement as well. And I'm thinking yoga in particular, oh, right. but all kinds of things. Yeah. Which leads to a whole idea that I really don't agree with, that, that the, the quality of an asana or a position is in the position. Right. Rather than in what I bring to it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess another way... Um, I'll ask the question maybe a slightly different way, which is that what are some of the habits of movement that you see um, that perhaps um, are, are more capable of leading to dis-ease, that, you know, habits of movement that are created by our own cultural relationship with our bodies? Do you have any thoughts on that, on, on habits of movement or habits of posture that are kind of bred by our social programming. Yeah, um, I, I, would, I would say that I don't think of it in terms of habits of movement, mm -hmm. uh, though I could get really kind of granular and specific and say there are some teaching instructions I think should just be barred from the language. Right, yeah. But in a bigger sense, I don't think it's habits of movement, I think it's habits of thinking mm -hmm. and habits of value, right, that we value uh, straightness in a way or we somehow value right angles or we value yeah. uh, um, effort and we value sensation in a way that is um, leading to injury. Mm -hmm. What about and, symmetry? Is that included in there? Yeah, that's included in there. And, and it depends on how you define symmetry right. then, but yes, also that we value symmetry. I would put that right in there, that you do the same thing on both sides, that the two sides have to match. That in so, the so you would probably disagree with the kind of, um, I'm thinking of one particular tradition that is um, trying to... Uh, align the poses with the idea of geometry or like sacred geometry, that there's some kind of um, geometrical correspondence between um, the ideal body architecture and, you know, what exists sort of universally in the cosmos. <laughs> Amy's laughing for those of you who can't see. <laughs> um. Well, it's going to be one of the... I'm laughing at myself because I, I, like, I feel like I constantly try to be like, well, let's shift the question a little bit. Yeah. Um, I, I, I believe deeply that there's a kind of um, harmonic spatial relationship mm -hmm. in form and, and in our bodies and in geometry. And I'm a big fan of the logarithmic spiral yes, and, yeah. and that kind of sacred geometry in math. So, and I think that our bodies reflect that kind of um, harmony mm -hmm. because we are expressions of, of those relationships right. happening in nature, molecules all the way up through atoms, all the way up through, um, I mean atoms through molecules, all the way up through tissues. and But what I don't believe is that a right angle is more harmonic 
or more better, and that if I get myself into a right angle, something magical is going to happen to me. <laughs> because I don't think that's all of the geometry that there is. And yeah. so the, the geometry that orients around angles mm -hmm. rather than circles and spirals and fluids and process. Yeah. So it depends on, like, you'd have to how you define how geometry. How you define it and what you do with it. Yeah, I guess what you're, what you're really distinguishing between is the idea of a kind of static geometry and a, and a sort of moving geometry or a fluid geometry and yeah. because when I you know I, I think oftentimes that that sort of notion of a geometry that we are the expressions of is kind of this sort of like it's like Plato's forms it's like exists up there transcendentally as a kind of you know hexagons and octagons I don't really know anything about geometry but that's my idea so so you're sort of drawing attention to the, with spirals something more kind of um, fluid and circular, yeah. which actually brings us to our next, the next uh, thing I kind of wanted to talk about, which is something that you're very interested in um, at the moment, which is swarming and <laughs> fractality or fractal systems. So um, I guess my first question is, you know, what do those terms mean to you? Are they synonymous or do you sort of understand them kind of differently? Well, so swarming is an idea that, um, that my friend and partner in Babies Project, Sarah Barnaby, and I, and I have worked on together. So this is not my idea alone. This is really right. Sarah and I have both been developing this and exploring it. And um, one of the things that the idea comes out of is the, the reading that we've done about what intelligence is and that they're different, there's a kind of intelligence that has been very valued in our modern culture about the individual and what they can know and comprehend and process and do, and it's very um, individualistic and it's very neurocentric. Mm -hmm. It's very nervous system oriented and it is in a way hierarchical. And there's a long time ago, like seven or eight years ago, Sarah and I read an article about how groups of animals, like schools of fish and birds, um, flocks of birds and swarms of bees, how they communicate with each other and are able to do incredibly complex and sophisticated actions in response to things in the environment that as individuals they would not be able to do mm. but because of the complexity of their relationships they can do these amazing survival things yeah and when we looked further into that with sarah found this article about fractal systems and how these and the, these sets of rules in the fractal systems that there are simple rules there's a kind of iteration to it that the same thing happens over and over but it can change there's a um, the agents are similar but there's some variety and that what starts to happen in that is these emergent properties arise not because I as an individual have sat down and said I am going to be creative now but emerging out of the relationships mm -hmm. So it's again about movement and relationship. What emerges out of the relationships is something different than what was before, mm -hmm. which is called an emergent property of the system or the swarm. So then one of the books we were reading at the time, or anyway, somehow ran into, is a book by Friedrich Capra called, hmm, 
I'm blanking on it, and I should have it, but I'll find it. It's not um, uh, the Tao of Physics. No, he wrote the Tao of Physics, but it's a later one. Okay. And it's about, a, it's a network theory about yeah. life. Okay. And um, it's much more recent, and he's worked with some programmers about networks, and, and then... Uh, I think biologists also, and he's got a definition of life now about life not being about a thing, but about a web of connections between agents where each agent might go away and be replaced, but the web of connections remains. Mm -hmm. And that web of connections exists far from equilibrium at the edge of chaos. Yeah. And that is what's going on in our bodies because our cells are dying all the time, mm. but the relationships between them, this web of connections is somehow maintained. So a lot of the work I do is, like look, is looking at embryology, is looking at the physiology of our body, at how communication in the body works. And there's so much communication in the body that happens embryologically before we have a nervous system. And in our bodies now, alongside the nervous system, not dependent on the nervous system, so the, what's called the neurocentric view of our body, that like we are a, we're a, a flash car that's carrying our all-important brain around, is, it's just mistaken. Yeah. Like our brain did not grow our body. Yeah. Our body, in its complexity, grew itself a brain. Yeah. So that we, and then what happens? What happens if we think of ourselves as a swarm of relationships instead of an individual intelligence? Yeah. And there's certainly importance to individuality and I need to sometimes act as an individual with my own sense of agency, but that coexists and is interdependent with that you and I are part of a swarm of people mm -hmm in New York City and all of our actions and every little relationship is having an impact. Mm -hmm. And those coexist and are interdependent. And so can we hold both of those and can we value both of those and, and, and bring some of the value up of that more horizontal web kind of right. model? Yeah, it's almost like when you're talking about individuality, it's almost like you could say that the highest or most full expression of your individuality is one that is integrated with its own environment or inter sense of interconnectedness. Yeah. You know, when you were talking about this idea of swarming and, and things emerging, it sort of made me think about this idea of zeitgeist, which is sort of a very sort of woo-woo term, but really, you know, if the swarming kind of idea really, I think, grounds in a certain kind of way, in a way that's more... I don't know, you know, scientifically, uh, scientific language that allows it to sort of to flesh it out. Because there are times when you know you have an idea, and then all of a sudden you see like that you think is very original, and then you realize you know across the globe someone's had this exact same idea, and there's yeah. this sense that uh, you know on you know in dimensions other than the ones that we can directly perceive, there's this kind of movement of energy happening. So you know, I guess my my question about this then is. It, conceptually, I grasp it, and 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 it sort of you know it lights up a whole bunch of things intellectually about and 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 also explains a lot of different kinds of behavior. But in what way does it inform you know your teaching, and also what how does it inform you know what we should do or how we should approach or how we should perceive our embodiment? Um, I'm going to start with the embodiment. 
question. Yeah. Part of the question. Um, I think that one of the uh, one of the one of the impacts that this idea of swarming has when I offer it to people in teaching is the idea that there is a level of communication and in intelligence or consciousness going on in your body that is not something you have to control with your so-called mind. And then, and then we have to kind of define mind, and we have to define consciousness, and mm -hmm. we have to define yeah. intelligence and all of those things, which I would like to redefine all of those. Yeah. But, but if we say that, if I say to you or offer the idea that your body, the cells in your body are talking to each other, and they're responding to things in your environment. They're responding to what you ate. They're responding to your thoughts. They're responding to your position. They're responding to what I'm saying. Some of them, some of those responses are coming in through your nervous system to your brain and being processed by your brain. Some of those responses are never going to make it to your nervous system and your body's just handling it. Mm -hmm. Now, eventually a lot of things get to your nervous system because it's kind of a central gathering place for information, but it's not the boss of everything. Yeah. And so I think a lot of times embodiment gets tied together with an idea about um, mindfulness or consciousness or that it's something I have to do and that I have to think about. And um, I would propose that it is what you are. And when I started working with babies and talking about infants a lot, people would say, well, are babies embodied? And they haven't done six years of embodiment training, and they don't meditate, and they don't, like, how could they be embodied? And I'm like, well, well of course babies are embodied. Like, babies don't meditate? Jeez. Yeah. Get it together, they, babies. <laughs> come on, babies. <laughs> so so if, if I believe that babies are embodied, which there's certainly a, a school of thought that babies don't even have consciousness until they're able to do this or this or this or this. But right. I don't buy that. I think babies come in with consciousness. They don't come in with communication skills to tell us about their thoughts. Mm -hmm. They don't, but, so we could argue that premise as well. But if we believe that babies are embodied, then, then that is what we are. And I think that we learn ideas, and we're back to ideas, we learn things, we learn values that get in the way of our experience of ourselves as embodied creatures. Mm. And, and one of my kind of questions about the embodiment culture is the idea that it is something I have to go get somewhere else and bring back, mm. rather than something I, I have. Mm -hmm. I don't even have, I am. And it doesn't mean it's easy to, to remove the obstacles, but that my practice is about removing the obstacles to, to what I already am. Mm. And some of those obstacles are really concrete physical things or, or, or um, like movement patterns I've taken on to try to survive what the world's offered me or strategies I've learned or, you know, addictions or, or um, toxic things I've taken in to try to survive. And so it doesn't, it's not to say it's nothing to find some, to find or have an embodiment practice, but it's not something that's not already 
there. Right. I see. I, I understand what you mean by that in this, in, in, in sort of the broader sense of, you know, it's already within us. And, and especially given what I know about you as being kind of opposed to hierarchical models or at least wanting to, you know, forge non-hierarchical ones alongside the hierarchical ones. But, you know, one of the things I appreciated about what I was listening when I was listening to one of your interviews before is um, the way in which when you first started teaching you felt limited by or constrained by your own language when it comes to movement. So, you know, talking about this idea of going outside to get something, isn't there a certain sense in which you know, the language that we are surrounded by, socialized by, um, and maybe even entrenched in, is limiting our our own, like, uh, notion of the possibility of, of embodied expression in such a way that it would make sense to kind of go find other language to allow me to feel my body more fully. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that... that um to respond to that goes back to then um, what you asked about what I think it has to do with teaching. Yeah. And I think that, um, so then, what do I think? (laughs) I think that my job as a teacher is not to uh, give you embodiment, Mm -hmm. but to um, offer you experiences that you might not have by yourself mm-hmm. that might open you, uh, op- reveal to you your existing embodiment. Mm-hmm. So I firmly believe that there are things that I can't do by myself and I need someone else to help me do them. But it doesn't mean it's because I'm lacking, it's because it means my, my um, the, the veil over my awareness of something, like I need someone else to help me get through that. Yeah. And it's that thing about, like I don't, I know what I know, I know what I don't know, I, you know, I don't know some of the things I do know, and then there's a whole bunch of You don't of know things. some of the things you do know? Yeah. Oh, like, you're, like, like your bot? Like sometimes when I'm teaching, yes, something comes out of my mouth, and I'm like, oh, I forgot that I knew that. It's like you're channeling so there's from the swarm. I, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so I know them somewhere, but I don't know I know them. Yeah. And then there's a bunch of things that I don't even know I don't know, mm-hmm. right? And I didn't come up with this. So who, Donald Rumsfeld, I think I heard say it Yeah, first, I've heard but, this before too, yeah. But that set of things that I don't know that I don't know, that's where someone else could come in and say, did you know that you always start your sentences with, or that you always sit this way, or you always tilt your head this way, or whenever you're angry, the first thing I see you do is this. Like, oh, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. I mean, probably somewhere in me, I'm aware that I'm doing it because I'm doing it, but what does it take? And I think that as a teacher, my, what I can offer people is an outside eye. Mm-hmm. And, my, and I can offer my subject matter expertise, which is theoretically about anatomy, like it's about anatomy in an abstracted way, right? And it's about physiology in theory. And it's about developmental movement as we understand it. But I don't know anything about you. Mm-hmm. So what I can bring is like, here's what we understand about physiology and how the endocrine system works. So let me tell you what, how we would describe that. And then you tell me what your experience is. And, and if I say something to you and you go, oh my God, I have a whole new understanding of my blood now, then something opened up for you. Mm-hmm. And if I tell you all that and you're like, 
Yeah, so? Then I'm like, then it, you don't need to know about your, your endocrine system as I understand it. We need to talk about something else. So I, I feel like there's an idea that teachers have to know things to give that knowledge to their students. And it's a problematic model about what education is. Yeah. And information can be super useful if it helps you reframe something or see it in a different light. But the information does not hold the embodiment. Yeah. The information, like if it opens a door, great. And if it doesn't open a door, it's just like clutter in your mind. Mm -hmm. so, so just to kind of hammer this idea down, <laughs> if that's an expression. Um, so uh, the idea of teaching that is sort of a, a sort of a kind of dogmatic, um, uh, um, putting of knowledge into you rather than, you know, sharing, a, a, you know, certain kinds of knowledge that may be of use to you in embodying or in, you know, living in your body in a more full way. Is that kind of the difference? Mm -hmm. Okay, so, so, <laughs> so now I kind of want to talk about, um, we'll, uh, shift gears a little bit and, um, and talk a little bit about your work on anatomy. And I feel like we're talking a little bit about this already, but you know, one of the keys to this fractality and swarming and, and the way that I understand it is this kind of non-hierarchical, um, you know, there's no kind of queen bee. Well, are there, there is a queen bee actually, but that's not key to the notion of swarming. <laughs> so we'll leave that out. Um, so how does the notion of, you know, hierarchy um, play into your, your understanding of like yoga and movement as it's being taught or as it's being expressed right now in the yoga world, whatever that means. Like, do you, do you see any kind of key issues that relate to a hierarchical model that we could kind of touch upon in terms of yeah. the yoga community? I feel like I see a couple of different things happening in the yoga community. And there, there's certainly a conversation that people are in about how can I use yoga to explore my experience of myself. And, and, and a lot of little threads of teachers and people going out and saying, like, how can you adapt this for yourself? And how can you make it work for yourself? And, um, and I, I love hearing those conversations happen. I feel like there's also a, a kind of conversation happening about there is a right way to do the pose, and if you do the pose just this way, something magical will happen. And, um, and that there's a right muscle to use. Like, I, yeah, if we head into the anatomy of it, that then mm. anatomically or physiologically, something will happen when your knee is at a right angle which then will have a psycho-emotional resonance that will take you down the road to enlightenment yeah. or despair or whatever. <laughs> and Chaturanga to despair. <laughs> and and I'm, a, I'm a fan of form. I think that form is really interesting as a container for exploration. So I'm very, very interested in whatever thing I'm practicing at the time in how do I do that version of it? So mm. if I go to an Iyengar class, how can I do an Iyengar Trikonasana, which is really different than uh, Ashtanga Trikonasana? They have, they have different rules. 
or the whole thing about your front leg has to be at 90 degrees in a warrior pose. There is nothing better for the knee about having your knee at 90 degrees. Mm -hmm. You can mess up your knee at 90 degrees and you can keep your knee safe at 95 degrees. The safety of your knee is not dependent on the 90 degrees. I want to say this so many different places. Mm -hmm. But it is an interesting question to say, can I do 90 degrees safely? And if that's the form and you say, can you do this? I'll be like, hmm, can I do it? And if I can't do it, can I learn to do it? Not because 90 degrees is magical, but because I can't do it. And what I do in learning to do it and stay organized doing it, for example, the process of learning will teach me something about myself. Hmm. And in the process of learning, do I get frustrated? Do I push too hard? Do I ignore the twinge and just do it? Do I back off because I'm afraid of the effort? Like that's where the yoga is. Mm -hmm. There's no yoga in 90 degrees versus mm -hmm. 89 or 75. Like it doesn't matter. But there's also a question like if I think I'm doing something and I'm not doing it, do I know that I'm not doing it? And if I know I'm not doing it and I don't care because I don't want to do 90 degrees because I can't do it without hurting myself, then don't do it. Mm -hmm. But also then don't go to a class where the rule is 90 degrees because that's their form. And there is something about inhabiting a form and respecting what the form is that mm -hmm. I think is important. Mm -hmm. But it has I, nothing to do with being more or less safe necessarily. No. And... It, it, like a lot of people hurt themselves doing headstand. Yeah, totally. A lot of people hurt themselves doing lotus. Definitely, it's not the pose's fault. Yeah, lotus does not have to hurt you. There are people who can do lotus totally safely. There yeah. are people who can do from headstand. cradle to grave. From cradle to grave, <laughs> exactly. They can do headstand, but if we don't know ourselves well enough to know what our capabilities are and what our limits are, then, then we're caught up in the idea of striving for a pose or for effort or for sensation or for any of these things that I, that I put out like as coming in from outside rather than my own embodiment and curiosity. Mm -hmm. And then I'm imposing something on myself. But it's not the form's fault. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I, I feel like I know the answer to this already, but I ask you, which is, what are your thoughts on, um, you know, a lot of anatomical cues in a yoga class? Because I know for me, I, I'm thinking of this one um, specific class, although there have been many sort of that are more or less to this extreme, where it's obvious that the teacher is sort of geeking out on anatomy at that moment, and they want to share every single, you know, pedantic detail that they know. And it's a little bit of a, it feels like a little bit of a show-off moment, maybe to the teachers in the room, um, but also it just totally disorients me. I mean, and I know about anatomy to a certain degree. I'm not like an anatomy specialist or anything, but, but it's so disorienting. It actually takes me out of my experience for someone to get so detailed about, you know, some obscure muscle in my shoulder. So there's a, um, there's a, there's a saying, the map is not the territory. Yeah. That uh, by Alfred Korzybski, who was one of the founding thinkers around semantics. And the map is not the territory, which you might be familiar with, but the idea is that the way we talk about an experience is not the same as having the experience. 
if we're talking about movement or something, mm -hmm. and that the ways we have um, taken on trying to articulate how we see the world is an expression of our bias and our assumptions and our culture. Yeah. It's not what is. So language is not the same as the experience. Language is by its nature shaped by the, the context of whoever's creating it. And a model then, a map or a model, but a model is then shaped by the people and the culture of the people building it. It doesn't mean we shouldn't make models and it doesn't mean we shouldn't use language because language is the best thing I have so far to communicate besides touch at a certain point. So language is important and it's limited. Anatomy is not reality. Anatomy is a map. Mm -hmm. Anatomy is one way that our Western culture has come up with to understand the body. And it's based on most of our anatomical language got codified in a time that was dominated by a, a white male perspective and a mechanistic perspective. So people were looking at bodies as machines in a, in a hugely Christian-based, even though it was you know, trying to move away from religion, it was still very hierarchical, well, it was a long span of time, so a lot of things were going on. But the, the language we have for anatomy comes out of a very particular mindset. And it's really useful to talk about bones and muscles. Yeah. But the name of your bone is not the same as your experience of your bone. Right. And the way that we are learning anatomy is still an expression of that mechanistic model. Mm -hmm. And it, it ties back into the kind of geometry and the right angles. And the um, if we comprehend this, we can control it kind of mindset, mm -hmm. which is a controlling mindset, which is... Um, like a controlling mindset as opposed to a participating mindset. So a participating mindset, I think, is more of this swarming idea that I don't control it, but I'm part of yeah. and, and, and engaging in. So I love anatomy. Mm -hmm. I love it. It's a model that makes a lot of sense to me. And, and when I think about it, it helps me understand my body in a certain way. And... And my study of bones, my study of muscles, my study of physiology, of the fluid, all this stuff, it like, it helps me, it gives me doorways into my body where I can be with myself in a different way. It doesn't do that for everybody. Right. It does not do that for everybody. And the thing that doesn't do that for me is chakras. <laughs> if you talk to me about chakras, like I have a theoretical understanding of them because I've done my teacher trainings and I listen to the guy and I, I get it. I get it, but they don't, they don't light anything up for me. Mm -hmm. Where if I settle in to try to feel my blood circulating, mm -hmm. I have this magical experience of what's going on in my body. Now, they're both models. They're both stories we tell to try to comprehend. Uh, so I don't, I, like, I don't think chakras are wrong. I don't think anatomy is right. I th I'm like, what works for you? And what helps you into your experience of your body? Yeah. And your body is not just bones and muscles. Yeah. And one of the big, like, one of the, one of the issues I have with anatomy being so exalted right now is that then people come to me and they say, well, 
So um, what bandha, what muscles make up mula bandha? And I'm like, mula bandha is so much more than bones and muscles. Mm -hmm. And we could talk about the muscles that might be related, but there's no, I don't think, I think it's, I think it's wrong to limit mula bandha to a set of muscles. Just squeeze your anus. Squeeze your anus or, or you know, engage the levator ani or, you know, what, even if you get more, more, um, yeah nuanced about the muscles and and I find it problematic because it ends up diminishing the other model by mm -hmm. saying it's not valid until I've mapped it to the anatomical yes one. yes and the anatomical so it's almost model, colonialist about it it's colonialist the anatomical model is privileged in this way yeah that everything else is yeah. is um, provincial ethereal or provincial or goofy or energetic because it's not, and, and if you give me an anatomical description, then it's real. And I'm like, that's not it. That's ana anatomy is not any more real mm -hmm. than your experience of your third chakra. It's just, I, you know, I don't, and then we could talk about like, oh, you find your third chakra, I find my um, small intestine, let's talk about that mm -hmm. and see. And we might be able to meet there, but we don't have to make the match. There's not one that's more right. So... I find the idea that yoga teachers need to talk about anatomy deeply problematic mm -hmm. because it privileges anatomy too much and we end up with these teachers who've learned all this random stuff that may or may not help their student have a deeper experience of themselves. Mm. And I think that if someone loves anatomy, totally learn it talk about it, share it, say like, this is what I geek out on. If you don't want to hear about anatomy, maybe don't come to my class, Yeah. but go find someone's class who meets you or come and see how I do it. And, you know, but you can be an amazing teacher and never talk about anatomy. Yoga is not dependent on anatomy. Yoga is a whole body experience and you can be an incredible yoga teacher and never talk about bones and muscles. Mm -hmm. And you can be an awful yoga teacher and, and rattle all off the all yeah. the bones and muscles. But the caveat to all of that is, if you are going to talk about anatomy, you should know what you're talking about. Yeah. And there's a bunch of flawed anatomy being talked about out there. Oh, yeah. And my first choice would be, like, stop talking about it mm -hmm. and help people have a different experience of themselves because I think anatomy is also potentially distancing. Mm. Like, you described your own experience. Like, now I'm thinking about where my muscles are in my body instead of being in the movement. Yeah. So anatomy can be can bring you into yourself or it can distance you from yourself like any other model. Yeah. And I just I love it, but I wish it weren't the be all and end all. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I'm glad we got here because one of the things I wanted to ask you, um, which came up uh, or I had thought to ask because of a, our mutual friend, Dr. Scott Lyons, <laughs> mentioned that you will, you would go so far as to say, which is essentially what you've just said, that yoga teachers don't need to learn anatomy. So, um, so then, uh, what makes? I guess the next question then is, you know, what are the components that make a good yoga teacher, mm. from your perspective? Mm. Curiosity. Mm. Um, Oh, you know, I think there it could be a there could be a lot of different things, um, but my short list would have on it curiosity, um, 
willingness to to uh, what a capacity to observe and not know. So almost the opposite of what we're taught, which is like to look at someone and say, oh, you're like this because your right shoulder is higher. Like, mm. Can I look at you and say, actually, your left shoulder, your left shoulder is a little higher than your right. Mm. Then how do I have a conversation with you about that? So <laughs> he just switched shoulders in case you didn't notice. Um, so, so a capacity to observe or skill at observing a willingness to not know, curiosity. If you're going to use a model, some expertise in that model, like if you're going to talk about yoga, know, know what, what style of yoga you're talking about. If you're going to talk about anatomy, know about anatomy. If you're going to talk about something, know what you're talking about. But at the same time, recognize that you're not an expert in the people you're working with. Mm -hmm. I think some um, some some ability to stand up in front of people and take the seat of the teacher but not need to be right. Yeah. And I don't know what the word for this quality is, but I think that there's a a humanity to saying, I'm the teacher right now, I'm leading, this is how I structure this class. If you don't want to do this, you can leave. If you do want to do this, this is what we're doing. It does not mean I'm right, it means I'm leading in the moment. Mm -hmm. And this is a thing that, it goes back to the swarming idea, which is one of the things we've found when we've tried to work with groups of people around swarming, is that uh, like when a, when a group of any creatures move around a space, different people end up in front. Mm. And the people who end up in front end up needing to lead. Mm. And then when the swarm shifts, someone else needs to lead. And one of the things when we try to do these experiences with large groups of people, one of the things that gets in the way of the swarming experience happening is the people who are like, well, what are they going to do over there? And what's the whole group going to do? And what about this? And like, they're trying to take care of the whole instead of their own little local thing. So they're, like, they're trying to hold too much. But the other thing that doesn't work is that when like, the, a, a group of people pivot and someone ends up in the front and it's their time to lead and they don't, and they do all this like, I don't want to be in front, that's a problem too. So we talk about participating as being willing to step up and lead when it's time to lead, and then willing to step back and participate when it's time to participate. And that ability to step in and out of leadership, or in and out of being in the seat of the teacher, or in and, like that's what I think, one of the things I think that a teacher um, is really important, that's important for a teacher to do. Yeah. To stand up and say, you asked me to teach you, I'm gonna offer you what I have. Take it or leave it. You don't have to like it. You have to respect the group that's here right now. Like there's some basic things, mm -hmm. like be a good person in the moment, but I'm not the most right and I don't know what will help you. Mm -hmm. And somehow sitting in that place 
which is really about some quality of relatedness, re relationship, availability to relate. And I don't mean we have to be best friends, and I don't, as a teacher, have to tell you all of my stuff, and you don't have the right to ask me all my personal details, but there's a contract between teacher and student in this moment that says, I'll lead, and you'll listen, mm -hmm. and then we'll see what happens. Mm -hmm. And then when it's my time to be teachable, I'll be teachable. Well, what I really love about this idea of leadership in relation to the swarm that you're talking about is that I feel like leadership is often invoked as kind of, it's an innate feature of certain individuals. You know, someone's a born leader, you know? And what you're saying is that, no, it's really about the configuration of the swarm at any given moment that gives rise to the emergent property of an individual being a leader. Yeah. Which is a really beautiful and contextualized way of thinking about leadership. Yeah. And then how do we raise people willing to lead? Willing to lead when it's time to lead. Mm -hmm. And not leading when they don't need to lead. Right. And, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we're getting close to the end of our um, time, and it's been so interesting. I have tons more things I could ask you. <laughs> but, you know, I wanted to ask you this question because, you know, you obviously co-authored this book with Leslie Kamenoff, Yoga Anatomy. Now you don't, you say, we don't need anatomy to be yoga teachers. So my question is sort of like, how has your per, um, perspective on anatomy changed or, or, or how do you think about yoga anatomy differently than you did when you co-authored this book, if, if at all? Mm. Well, um, hmm. when we wrote the book, like it, it was my job to do the, the asana part, mm -hmm. to do the bones and muscles in the different asana. And, and doing the book helped crystallize for me my profound resistance to pinning things down. Yeah. And I found that I, uh, they kind of asked, and Leslie asked me on to do the what muscles working in this pose. And I was like, Leslie, I can't do it. Mm. I can't do it. I'll give you a list of what might be, but we can't pin it down. And, um, and that's what we did, is it's, it's lists. It's like a list of ingredients. And, uh, it, and I think in the second edition, I wrote more about anatomy. I wrote more in the opening chapters. And, and we changed the asana part to try to make it even clearer that it's a list of ingredients not a recipe. And, and I, like someone wrote a review on Amazon and they're like, I use it as my how-to book and I open it up and I find every month. And I'm like, no, no. <laughs> don't do that. And don't do that. Like, um, so I appreciate it as a book out there for people who are interested. I'm glad to have done it. Yeah. Right? And, and I want it out there as a book for people, if you're interested in anatomy, to say, look, these are all the things that could be going on in a pose. And there's not one muscle that everybody uses in trikonasana, and there's not one muscle that everybody stretches in. Or is that supposed to stretch? Or, or that's supposed yeah. to stretch. And if you don't feel stretch in your hamstrings yeah. and down dog, what's wrong with you? Keep going until you feel stretched. Like, it's so yeah. flawed. So I would like it to be a... Um, kind of subversive book out there saying like here's a way if you're interested in anatomy to engage with anatomy but you don't have to this isn't telling you anything more important than um what a, a book on the what the sutras are or yeah 
and I don't, I'm, you know, I wouldn't say the sutras are the most important thing either, but, uh, yeah, I, yeah. Hmm. So I, I want, I'm, I'm happy with how the book is, with what the book is. I'm sometimes unhappy with how it's being used. Yeah. And it's difficult to have something in writing out there that, like, you can go away and make of it what you will. And I, I don't have any relationship to the people reading it except for what I've written. And so I can't... I'm a, I'm a big fan of calibrating things and, and engaging in the context of something and how do I meet someone. And so I don't have a chance to meet them. It's just through the words. And mm-hmm. I find that challenging, but I also then travel around the world and people are like, oh, I've read your book. And they feel like they know me. And... I enjoy that too. So it's another thing I sit in the middle of kind of a paradox, paradoxical feeling. Well, I love that. I love that you're open about, you know, about the work that you do in this kind of, you know, really at the edge of chaos <laughs> sort of way. So what's the, f- this was actually a question that Scott, cause I was, I was talking to Scott about ask some questions I was going to ask you and <laughs> I hope he's listening. Um, and so he, I, the question is sort of what is the future of anatomy you know from like this sort of basic western idea to you know functional anatomy which we didn't really talk about sort of specifically although you know um, indirectly I suppose to kind of experiential anatomy which seems to be more uh, that idea of experiential anatomy seems to be more aligned with what's happening now with it with your work um, uh, unless you disagree with that but what is the future of kind of our relationship to anatomy Well, I don't, I don't know what the future is. I know what I hope for. <laughs> Can you for. not see into the future, I can, Amy? I can't Jeez. see into the future, no. It's not one of your skills? No. Okay. No, I'm like firmly right here, very horizontal. <laughs> I'm not very good at looking ahead. Um, what, I would, what I would wish for is that people um, take on ownership of their own bodies and I don't even mean ownership I mean like take on the participation in their own bodies in a way that they use anatomy when it's useful in a way that if they're going to go to a doctor they don't get cowed by anatomical language right and that if they go to a yoga teacher and the yoga teacher says something that doesn't make sense to them that they're like that doesn't make sense in my body can you say it a different way Mm -hmm. and that that one of the things I think is happening in yoga teaching is something that's happening overall in education, which is that we are raised to treat outside people as experts on us. Yeah. And what I would wish for is that in um, all education, but I think particularly in yoga, like I really wish that this could shift in yoga, and I feel like in the somatics field, where I also am, we're, we're, we're in a place where this could shift, that yoga and somatics could shift this way too. Um, not letting other people be experts mm. on my experience. Right. That you can be an expert on, on your model of the mind, but don't tell me how my mind works. Yeah. And, and I want to get us into that conversation, which mm-hmm. is not just about the future of anatomy, but it's the about the future of any um, expertise in any subject matter. And we need experts in the models, and the models are really useful, and they're fascinating. 
It's fascinating to hear how people construct a story about reality. But it's like read, it should be like reading mythology mm. in a way. Like, oh, people explained lightning this way years ago, and now they explain it this way. And how are they going to... Like, we have no idea what's coming. But can we, can we use those outside subjects to help us... Um, like be in relationship with our own experience instead of being told about what our experience is. Mm-hmm. And how does that help us participate in our own well-being or... Because I, I feel like that also, it hinges upon this idea of like par- participatory health or well-being mm-hmm. where it's not just like the doctor, you know, tells me what mm-hmm. I need, mm-hmm. but that I'm actually participating in the process of my own health. Yeah. Well, part of it is... is um, finding doctors who will be in that kind of participatory yeah. relationship and demanding it yeah. and saying, you got to explain this to me again. You got to keep saying it until I understand it. And, um, I'm not going to do it until you tell me what you're talking about. Yeah. And, uh, but I think we should say that to our yoga teachers too. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to do it just cause you said so. And, uh, I hope this inspires just people to like stand up in the middle of a group class and be like, can you repeat that in a different way? (laughs) Come to my class and do that. You can do that, yeah. (laughs) Um, But also, yeah, I I just, I think that, that this is happening and I think hopefully it will keep happening and it has to do with speaking up, and it has to do with valuing myself, and it has to do with, um, like, I'm just going to go there. It has to do with voting. Yeah. Like, everybody should go and vote. Voting is participating in the swarm. Like, yeah. it's such a swarming thing to do. And, mm-hmm. like, we need a government. I believe that we need a government. I don't want to destroy the government, but I want to participate in who's governing us. Yeah. And I want them to change. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good, this uh, is a good note to, uh, to end on. Yeah. No, but what were you going to say? You were going to finish a thought. Yeah, I, I think that, I just think making my own movement choices, making my own social choices, making my own political choices, they're all tied together mm-hmm. and they're all um, interdependent and kind of co-regulating. Yeah. And that's, that's what I wish for, for us, not to be independent, but to be in relationship and supporting each other. Mm. So, Amy, tell us a little bit about what you're doing to, as, our, as our final note. You know, obviously, the Babies Project is a big thing for you. But what else are you um, doing at the moment? And do you have any workshops or trainings coming up that people can look into? Well, I, in New York City, I am always teaching um, weekend workshops uh, at Babies Project for adults. So there's developmental movement workshops. There's embodied anatomy workshops. Um, I have weekly classes here when I'm in town. We also have at Babies Project, you can come observe the work we do with infants if you're curious about what we do or Mm. learning more about our principles. On Mondays and Fridays, you can come observe those groups. I'm also um, part of the training programs in body-mind centering. So I'm starting a a somatic movement educator certification program in Rhode Island in February of 2019. In June of 2019, I co-teach another training program in Oregon at a place called Moving Within. Um, I also travel, like I'm going to Germany next week to teach on a body-mind-centering teacher training, and then I'll do a weekend workshop in Milan. 
So I teach in Italy, I teach in Ireland, I teach a lot of different places. Yeah. All the information is on my website. Babiesproject.com? So the Babies Project website is babiesproject.org. Okay. Dot .org. And then my personal website is embodiedasana.com. Embodiedasana.com. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Amy. It's been such a pleasure chatting with you. You're welcome. Thank you for having me.